Hello and welcome to the Addicts Anonymous podcast. I'm your host, Jamar. Today's episode 176, and we're going to be interviewing David. How are you doing today, David? I'm really well, Jim. Thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm very excited to talk to you. Yes, and you're joining us from the UAE, you told me before. That's right. I'm living in the in Dubai. I'm sure uh, your listeners will know that my accent isn't a UAE accent. It's very British, but I, but I moved here, yes, a few months ago. All right, cool. Well, let's kind of, I guess this is jumping ahead a little bit in your story, but just let's talk about why did you go to the UAE? Mainly? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about recovery, but um, the, the last three years I'd been volunteering in a rehab and worked there in the last year, um, and I became a sober coach, so I started working with private clients. I've been traveling to the UAE for about 20 years, and I, I quite like it here. But I just felt that there was a calling. Uh, you know, it's very difficult, isn't it, to describe when you feel an urge, an unexplained urge to go somewhere. Um, and that's why I've come here. So I think I'm the UAE's first uh, full-time dedicated sober coach. So, um, you know, I'm working in addiction and recovery. And I think I've come here because it's maybe a, a little bit different to the UK. You know, I think the USA and the UK, you know, were very well-versed in talking about mental health and addiction, maybe not so much here. So what I like to say to locals and people that ask is that I've not come here to make waves. I've come here to hold hands. Okay, very nice. So you're doing a good thing over there. I'm trying, Chris. Yeah. So let's start off how I also start off every other episode. Tell me about your childhood and growing up. Okay, bless you. Um, Well, I was born in Canada. Uh, I was born in Vancouver. Uh, my folks had emigrated, but I we came back to the UK when I was five. And uh, I grew up in a little seaside town called Burnham-on-Sea. So if you looked at a, a map of Great Britain, it's in the sort of bottom left-hand corner on the coast. Uh, I've got two older sisters. And it was only when um, my father died in the year 2000 did my sister tell me that he was an alcoholic. I don't think I knew that he was an alcoholic because, to be honest with you, I ran away from him. I hid I lived in fear. He was extremely angry and violent. That, that's what I remember about him. And um, so I don't think my childhood is something that you would call happy. I think it wasn't all my father's fault, by the way. I found a way to forgive him. And, and we can talk about that later. But the truth was, I think I always felt very different, Jim. You know, I felt uncomfortable. I felt different. Other people were my friends were popular and outgoing and comfortable in their skin. And I never really was. I always felt different. Um, I felt awkward. Um, and I sort of grew up like that. I, uh, I've got quite a brain on me. I, I was pretty good at mathematics. Um, and in my teens, uh, I got some of the very earliest computers. And I started doing some computer programming, which ended up being my first career. But uh, I ended up finding alcohol at the age of 11. And uh, wow, I so used young. to go. It, 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 it is. And and. I don't know why I found it at 11. I think somewhere along the line, I must have thought that it was very grown up to go to the pub. But my friend and I used to go to the pub uh, on a Friday and a Saturday night. I had a, I mean, I had a paper round, which was delivering newspapers. I used to go to the golf course and caddy. So I had money. And I remember going with my friend, Tim, and I used to turn up at the bar. And I thought I was so grown up. I used to buy a pint of lager, a whiskey chaser, a cigar and a pickled egg. Thinking that that's, that's what you do when you're really grown up. And I just used to get drunk and go home. Um, and so it continued. Yeah, it's amazing the things that we pick up on. And we always want, for some reason, kids always want to grow up so fast. And it's amazing some Gosh. kids, they choose what things that they decide are grown up. And obviously, drinking yes. is one of the big things. It's a grown up thing. Going to the pub, yeah, I, going I, to the bar. Absolutely. Look, going to the pub, getting a car, being independent and going out. Um, but but certainly when I was a teenager, um, I mean, you, you might ask, how the hell did you go into the pub at 11 years old? Well, you can't see, but I'm six foot six. Really? And at, the age of, at the age of 11, uh, I was six foot two and weighed uh, eight stone, which is what, about 100 pounds. I mean, I was stick thin, but I, I used to be able to get away with it and get served in bars because I was so tall. But um, from the age of of 13, 14, I would go to the pub with my friends. And I think I found that alcohol got rid of my social anxiety. And, you know, we've heard this many, many hundreds of times that if I drank, 
I became somebody else. I wasn't that timid, scared boy. I actually found a voice and I thought I was funny and I could talk to girls. And it just got me out of myself, which of course is, I think, in all honesty, um, what I searched for for the next 45 years. That's what alcohol did for me. Do you remember like the first time you drank the way it felt? Is that something that's in your memory? Actually, I, I, I do. I, I remember the first time I tasted alcohol, which was when I was six. Um, it was cherry brandy. I had a wobbly tooth. You remember when your teeth fall out? And, uh, and my mum, I remember saying it, I was complaining it was hurting. And she said, what you need to do is to rub some of this cherry brandy on your tooth and on your gum to numb it. Well, boy, oh boy, did I like that. I don't think I realised it was the alcohol that I liked. But um, what happened was I got into big trouble because um, when she wasn't looking, I would go and swig out the bottle and then pretty soon the bottle was gone. Hmm. And that was the first first time at six years old. <clears throat> there was this connection with, you know, that tastes nice. That feels a bit fuzzy. Wow. I think you just broke my record. I, I, I always say when I talk to people, I hear it gets younger and younger when they first started. And six is the earliest I've heard so far. Oh, bless you. I think that was my first taste. I don't think until 11 years old, that was when I regularly went out drinking. And and by the way, on purpose to get drunk. At so 11. It, it, at 11. It wasn't to go out and have one or two. I mean, I, I've never been able to ever have one or two. And people used to joke with me and say, you know, would you like to come out to the pub and have a quiet pint? And I'd say, well, I have a quiet pint as long as I can have another 10 loud ones. You know, and that was my joke. <clears throat> I always yeah. knew. I always knew that one was never enough. One of anything's never enough for me. So what made you decide to get drunk at 11? Okay. I, th I think it was um, unhappiness. I, th I think it was being in the environment at home, which was always shouting and arguing and being in fear. Um, and I don't think I dealt with that very well. I mean, I mean, I think... You know, I've looked back on my life and and it becomes a common theme with, with people that I speak to, which is, you know, you don't go to school to learn how to be a human being. You don't learn how to have a character. You don't learn how to deal with life's troubles and problems. You know, it osmoses in and we sort of accidentally learn how to be and we make mistakes. And, you know, who teaches you how to be a friend, how to learn who's friendly, how to deal with all these things? And I think if you throw in um, some childhood trauma, if you like, um, I think I grew up in fear. And, and I think I lived in fear uh, until I got into recovery. Um, and I think that that was the truth of the matter. So I think I was always ready as a boy to get out of the house, get on my bike and go anywhere but be at home, actually. I, I actually also I remember that in my teens, it was the first time I learned to run away. And my grandmother used to live down the road. And I used to run away secretly to a house when I was in trouble for, for nothing or something. I would go and live in a garage and put cardboard boxes in a garage and I would sleep in a garage for five days was the longest I slept. There. And my, I don't think my folks particularly cared where I was. They probably knew where I was. But I just felt that I needed to get out. And I think, again, running away, that became my MO as well. You know, when, when I became overwhelmed in life, I would run away. Yeah. So I don't know why you just clicked back some memories for me. I used to run away a little bit too. And uh, mm. all I remember was there was this old abandoned schoolhouse in front of my development. It was like, like from the 1800s. So it's like a one room schoolhouse. You know what I mean? Where the kids yes. used to learn. It was called the Robertsville schoolhouse. And the, the back door, you were able to jimmy it open. So I don't know if it was for like historic reasons they kept it, but it was locked. You couldn't get in there. And I used to be able to sneak in there and I would see the police driving around looking for me. I would look out the window and you'd see the sirens coming to development, go to my house and all that fun stuff. Yeah, that just clicked back some memories for me. Yeah, I, I think, you know, I don't know whether girls feel the same, but as boys, you know, we want that excitement. We want to set some terror up and we want to rush around and be yeah, little, little tykes and little irks. Um, the other thing that, that was idiosyncratic to Burnham on Sea, I said it was a seaside town. Um, so on, on the front of the seafront, because lots of holiday makers would come there when, when sometimes the sun would come out in Britain, um, there were, um, it was called a pavilion and it was full of space invaders, gambling machines, 
uh, one-armed bandits. People could go there and play bingo. And from the age of seven, I used to go there. I used to go with my pocket money, get on my bike, and I would gamble on slot machines. And I remember playing the very first Space Invaders and Galaxians and pinball machines. And quite literally, I spent my childhood in there. So um, if I wasn't in the pub as a teenager, during the day I was in there. And I had summer jobs working on the beach as a lifeguard and doing a few other things. And all my money would go into these slot machines. So even then I was running away and I found gambling before I was 10. And I would steal money and I would go there. And again, I, I think a lot of this stuff is so, sort of quite lonely, lonely things to do, actually. So, yeah. so being being on my own, playing on a, on a, a pinball machine, um, I ended up buying two pinball machines because I love them so much, you know. Um, and but but playing on a pinball, playing on a fruit machine, uh, or being at home as a teenager doing some computer programming and sitting there on my own—that sort of isolation—that uh, began very early on. Yeah, that's a common thread. Yes, a lot of us addicts isolate ourselves. Yeah, well, it it it, it becomes everything at the end, doesn't it? I, I mean, and it becomes. The very thing uh, that that crushes us somewhat, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean, we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about it later. But but that's absolutely for me. It was running away um, and then isolating. So I would run away to hotels and and just take loads of cocaine and gamble for three days nonstop until I got psychosis. But I'm sure we'll come to that later. <laughs> yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing those stories. <laughs> Bless you. <laughs> so um, so. Alcohol was your first drug. You did that at the edge of, I think you said 11. What yeah. was the next thing that you did? What was like okay. the next step you took? Yeah, the next step. Uh, I went to university. Um, I couldn't wait to get out of my town. And uh, I went to university uh, to study nuclear physics. And I very quickly found uh, marijuana. Uh, I found weed. I had some friends who were big dope smokers. And... Um, I'll tell you now, this, this, I was telling a friend this story the other day. Um, I think I ended up with my first sort of identity. So I'm at university, living on my own, uh, you know, in student halls. I've got my first big gang of friends. Um, I'm living with my own money. And uh, I've got these, these friends who smoke dope. And uh, I realized that, you know, if you're, if you're in a gang and you're all smoking, Probably the most important person in the room is the guy that rolls the joints. He's got, he's got control of the weed. He skins up the joints. He passes them around. You always get them first. You know, all that sort of stuff. So I, I became known as Fingers. And Fingers was the guy that skinned up all the joints. And it, and it lasted like that for quite a few years. So at university, um, I uh, would had another close friend. And we found a, a dealer. And we would go and see this guy who's called John. And uh, you would walk up to his house. And uh, if he had some gear in, he, you could knock on the front door. If he didn't, he had a no smoking sign that he put in the window. And then he would just walk on by. And uh, we used to go and buy, buy drugs off this guy. And uh, then I started selling it to uh, all the guys in the university. Because I was absolutely potless. I had no money. And uh, so I became the guy that could go and buy you know, I could go and buy half an ounce and I could chop it up and then leave myself a quarter. You know, I became a bloody drug dealer when I was when I was 19 selling weed at university. Me too. I uh, This is the exact age I started selling weed. My, my <laughs> career didn't last too long. I was eventually caught with about two pounds. Oh, no, I never got that that big. Yeah, I got caught with two pounds. I was lucky. And this is a sad state of affairs in America. And anyone I say this to, they're like, you're right. I thank God I'm a white guy because if I was black at that age or Hispanic in, in my country, very good chance I would have went to jail for two pounds a week. Really? Um, How long for? I mean, the charges they were bringing against me came with like three years in jail. Because I was the person, I was the person that was giving it to people to sell. So I wouldn't sell okay. it to you. I would say, oh, I don't sell weed. I would deny it to everybody, but I was secretly giving it to people to go sell for me. So maybe okay. four or five people knew I sold. So you'd come over, I'd give you a quarter ounce. I would just give it to you. You know, ever hear the term spotting someone? No, never heard that. Oh, so it's spotting called spotting someone. them yes. where I just Sorry, give yes. it to you. And I say, come yeah. back with the money in a week after you sell it. Yeah. 
And it would continually go like that. And eventually I got caught stupid stuff. But now, ironically, um, marijuana is legal in New Jersey now. Right. All these years later, now it's like all the trouble I went through, all that nonsense, kind of for nothing, because eventually they made it legal. I feel bad for people that actually did jail time. Gosh, I mean, it just shows how things change um, within generations really, really quickly. Yeah, I have a daughter. She's two, and she's never going to know. Like, she's going to talk to daddy about prohibition because I guarantee that's going to be in the history books that there used to be prohibition on marijuana, and now it's legalized. Yeah, very, very interesting. I don't know whether that's going to happen in the UK. I just, I just can't see it. No, I can't see it. But I, listen, hey, I, I get surprised all the time. <laughs> and another thing is, if you guys are ever in position where you are desperately in need of money, because that's what happened in New Jersey. The pandemic hit, and New Jersey was out of money. We didn't know what to do, basically. And, okay, what can we do that's not going to hurt anybody? Let's legalize marijuana, because it doesn't kill anybody. There's no, you know what I mean? You don't get, like, the, the numbers don't go up with car accidents or rape incidents or fighting at college houses. You know what I mean? Like, those numbers don't increase for marijuana. So that's just a way to... Let's tax the living daylights out of it and make some money. So I think if the UK is ever in a position where they're like, we're going broke, legalizing marijuana might give you guys a lot of income. Wow. Well, I think the nation is going broke at the moment. I think they're in big trouble, um, you know, from what I I read. But it's very interesting that, that Jim, some of the statistics you were talking about, you know, or not the statistics, but the way it's viewed, that it's almost viewed like this is a harmless thing to do. Yeah, it is. And it's not technically harmless. It, it could be. So to some, when it comes to marijuana, I don't believe it's a gateway drug. I believe it's the easiest found thing first. Like when yeah. someone decides I want to do drugs, the first thing that's easily accessible for one reason or another is marijuana. If you switched that to cocaine and made it easier to find the marijuana, we would be saying, oh, cocaine's a gateway drug because it would be the first thing that people do. And that opens the doors to the other drugs. Yeah. So I do believe there are some people we call them normal people because we're in, I consider me not normal. Um, yes, me too. Where they can take a puff of weed or they can smoke a joint and that's it. They go to bed. They they go up the next. They wake up the next day. They get their kids ready for school. They take their kids to school, make them lunches. They go work a full time job, and that's fine. But then there's other people who they're going to smoke all day. They're going to be late to work. They're going to call out of work. They're going to spend all their money on it. They're going to neglect their children. So yeah. it's a it's a slippery slope as to what is okay and what's not. I think once you get into the harder drugs, they're just so much more addictive. Like marijuana to me is yeah. not, I mean, everyone reacts differently to it. To me, it's not addictive. Yeah. Um, like the one drug I think is the biggest gateway drug that for some reason nobody brings up, cigarettes. Yes, yes. Because yeah. I know, I don't know about you, but when I smoked that first cigarette, I got a buzz. I was like, oh. Yes, of course. I, I relaxed. So if, if yeah. cigarettes do this, just imagine what marijuana will do. And then that opened up the gates to try it. Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. Do you know what? I, I, I love listening to that because you've already changed my perspective on things. You know, because I'm, in many ways, sometimes I'm isolated in who I know or what I know. And it's lovely to hear somebody else's opinion um, because it helps shift what, what I think I know. And, and gosh, that, that's the wonderful thing about, about talking to people and being connected, is it not? You know, there's only so much stuff that I can watch on YouTube, but half of it's exactly. bullshit. You know, I learned I so is... much from addicts. When I came out of rehab, yeah. I wasn't in like the um the rehab scene. So I didn't know a lot of the lingo. I didn't know what certain things meant. Like, so I, I learned a lot by talking to other addicts. They uh, every time yeah. I do one of these podcasts, I learn something new, you know. Yeah, of of course. And and, and that's why I, I, I love listening to so much. Getting back to it being a gateway drug. I can yeah. tell you the only reason that it would anything like that would be a gateway drug and from personal experiences that when I was a student um, very early on, one day we went to the dealer to buy some some blow. He didn't have any, but he said, I've got some acid. So we all said, great, we'll try that then. So that's why it's a gateway drug. Yes. Because the dealer is the guy that's dealing all sorts of things. Yeah, exactly. So you never know who you're going to be speaking to. Yeah, correct. You know, and the guy's going to say, hey, listen, why don't you try this? I wonder how many people have ever ended up trying heroin because the guy said, try this. Now, you know, if, if they weren't meeting that guy um, because it's legalized and there, there's now the marijuana shop, they'd never meet that guy. I don't quite know how it's how it's sold, but that's what I'm imagining. 
you know, in legalizing yeah, it, you're, the, you're... you have to go to a dispensary. So okay. there are some smoke shops, but they don't sell weed. You have to go to a natural dispensary. The smoke shops will sell stuff like uh, bongs and bowls, things okay. to smoke out of. They'll sell. Um, they have different um, versions of THC. Like they have something called Delta 8, Delta 9. Right. All, all these CBD is a big thing. So yeah. there you go to the smoke shops to get that stuff. And then you go to a dispensary and they sell mostly weed. Okay, because because then it's controlled or regulated, if you like. It's regulated by the state of New Jersey, yeah. Okay, got it. So in the UK, those those shops, they're called head shops. And um, yeah, yeah, we call that same thing here, head shops. Okay, head shops, so you can get your, your bong and, and this, that, and the other. Um, the only other experience I've ever got, I've not been to, is Amsterdam, where, of course, there are shops, and you can, cafes and bars, you can go and buy you know, marijuana as much as you want. Yeah, I've always wanted to go to Amsterdam. I would just love to see the culture there. You see all these pictures of the colorful buildings. Everyone seems to be so much more relaxed and open. Um, I wonder why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, uh, I know in the States, when we talk about marijuana, one last thing is a lot of people don't realize a lot of the laws surrounding marijuana came from racism. And then also in the 60s, Nixon was facing a problem. Yeah. He was having huge protests. And what was one yeah. of the things that all the protesters were doing? They were smoking weed. So if you oh, make yeah. the laws much more difficult and harder for them, hopefully they'll protest less and they'll be less likely to get arrested with it or they yeah, don't yeah. want to be arrested. with. It. So there's a lot of stuff like behind the scenes that happened. And people that were in the Nixon administration, they admitted this. They're like, absolutely, it's 100% true. Really? Okay. Yeah, to, so, it's fascinating. It's fascinating the way things end up being over there because of this this one decision you know exactly. based on based on an assumption that if if we elite you know it's illegal these people are going to stop you know, protesting about vietnam or whatever you know um <laughs> you know quite it's amazing slow it down yeah okay got it so going back to you it sounds like you had a pretty good social life your whole life because some people the drugs like isolate them and they end up you know what I mean? From the very beginning, doing everything about self. But it sounds like you had fun at the university, going out with friends and stuff. Yeah, I I, I made a good gang of friends. Um, we all pretty much smoked weed, but I like music and, I, and we went out and did things. And, you know, after I left university and got my job, um, this 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 was an interesting, interesting time that I realized. I mean, so, yes, sociable, but still wearing the mask, still feeling uncomfortable, still needing alcohol to be sociable if that makes any difference I don't, I don't think i was ever naturally sociable or naturally comfortable in other people's company that's I why they call they liquid courage liquid courage yeah there you go absolutely so you know there came the time when i left university and needed to get a job um i ended up working uh, for a software company i wrote software for the military uh, I worked on missile systems and did all sorts of things like that now at the time i was still smoking weed and i got it into a house share. And I think I worked out very quickly that I couldn't carry on with a career and smoking weed. Um, it just didn't go hand in hand. And I think that, you know, that's a very interesting time because if I imagine in my early 20s, I still had the power of choice, Jim, then. I still had the power of choice. It left me, between then and then, it changed. You know, the seesaw tipped and I lost the power of choice. But then I still had the power of choice. So uh, I stopped smoking weed, uh, but I was still a big drinker. And um, and at the weekend, I, I was one of those guys that, that loved that phrase, work hard, play hard. I deserve a big, big weekend. So during the week, I would really focus hard on my career. And I moved different, moved around different companies. Um, I ended up um, being a software engineer, then ended up working in banking, um, uh, in banking for a few years. And then I lived in Switzerland for three years. Um, so my career is going on the upward trajectory. My earnings are going up. Uh, I'm not smoking weed anymore. I'm not doing any other drugs at all. I'm just drinking. But again, as the more I earned, the more I could afford, the bigger my weekends would be. Um, I wasn't ever somebody who would get big hangovers. I'm a big guy. I could drink a lot. But I think I just you know, flooded my system with so much alcohol it's amazing how much we tie into money with success because that was one of the things i used to say is i'm making money i pay my bills i have a place to live etc 
I can't be an addict. I can't have addiction issues because addicts are homeless or they're in um, shelters or they're in sober houses. So I, I, I think we all feel that like I wasn't one of you. I wasn't one of you guys. I was completely different. <laughs> no, no, no. I understand oh, you are, but me, it's not the same. And meanwhile, I was absolutely identical to the shit we were all going through together. Do you know that that ended up being part of of the reason I ended up finally getting into into recovery? But I battled that for a decade. We'll, we'll come on to that later. But I back I battled that, Jim. I, I really did. I was not like you guys. In in fact, I, I when I, I first went into rehab in two thousand and nine because I was drinking too much. Um, what I didn't tell them that I was taking loads of cocaine. So when I was in the rehab, my dealer was delivering cocaine to the car park. <laughs> so while I was there, I mean, I couldn't be honest. You know, they're asking you to be honest. Have you ever tried drugs? No. You know, but I've been up for two days. They they thought that I suffered from bipolar because I was up and down and up and down while I was in there. Um, and I love that because I remember saying, that's great. I've got a diagnosis. This is why I'm screwed. It's because I've got bipolar. No, it isn't. It's because you're, you're an addict and you keep taking drugs while you're in rehab. It's, yeah. just, it's, it's just... It's just the insanity. Forgive me, I went off on a tangent then. No, no, keep talking. We um, we do that. We we will. Like for me, it was kind of the same thing where I I was a heavy drink, but I was like, oh, let me just take Adderall, which is an amphetamine. Yeah, because I love that. Stay up for three days writing music and playing my guitar and piano, and yeah. in my mind, I was sober because I wasn't drinking. Got you. And then, like, now that I look back, I'm like, dude, you just switched from one drug to another. That's all you did. Yeah. For, for yeah, one reason or absolutely. another, I didn't consider Adderall, like, a, a real heavy drug, even though it is. You can die from it if you do too much, you know? Get of course. Get up there long enough. Of course. Yeah, I landed myself of course. in the hospital a few times. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, me, me too. I'll, I can talk about that. A lot, lots of times um, because of uh, attempted suicide for me. A few times, yeah. actually. Not lots, a few um I'll, I'll come to that but so look in my 20s 30s my career is going up i work very very hard um and i think that you know in the same way jim i can be a workaholic oh yeah i can absolutely bust my balls and really work hard and my career changed i moved abroad i ended up coming to the usa i lived in new york for three years oh right um, by me yeah yeah i lived in in westchester county in harrison um and uh, I ended up working as a consultant for, for an IT company, a software company in New York. I ended up working on the Garden State Parkway, um, at Mercedes-Benz in North America for a bit. So I lived there for two, three years. So, But again, massive drinking, always massive drinking. Every single weekend is a big blowout. Um, but I'm still in those days in my early 30s, still focusing on the fact that I've got to do my job. I've got to earn money. I've got to have my career. You know, I was quite driven. So it meant that I didn't drink copious amounts during the week. I was never a lunchtime drinker. I couldn't drink during the day. But at the weekend, I would drink to oblivion. And I think that I think I'd got to the stage in my life where life had become automatic, which was that I worked really hard. But I think, honestly, if anyone had asked me or if I'd been honest, I don't think I was happy. And I don't think I was happy because I didn't know who I was. Everything was still quite alien. Everything was still a struggle. Still, um, you know, dealing with my lack of empathy with, with other people, not understanding the, the way they ticked. Just feeling an outsider, actually. If I just tried to sum it all up, I always felt on the outside. Even when I was in a gang of friends, I always felt on the outside. Yeah. I have a saying, addiction is a lonely place to be. Yeah. Because for whatever reason, towards the end, you just feel alone. It gets sad. It goes from this good uh, thing that, oh, it's for my friends. We're having a great time. We're doing good at work. Everything's going perfect. And then yeah. one day you just hit this peak and then you head straight down. Yeah. The slide happens slowly. It's insidious and progressive. And you don't quite know when it began, but you know when you get to the end. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. You know, well, hopefully everybody knows when they get to the end. Some of the people in the fellowships that I'm a member of, they they never find out the end. 
So what were your main drugs of choice? Like why you were do, on when you were on the upward trajectory as far as your career, what was the main things you were using? Only alcohol. Only no alcohol. other drugs. Only alcohol. Um so I had I had five different careers. Um I came back from America, I got married, uh, I was a big drinker. Uh, I was gambling a lot, actually. Um I was still a big gambler. Um in two thousand and four, um uh, something accidentally happened to me that changed things a little bit. Um, so the internet was going strong. Um, I used to play poker online and there's the world series of online poker. And I entered that and came 14th in the world and won wow. $48,000. I just missed the top table and I'd been up for one and a half days playing. And, uh, I remember my wife came downstairs and it was started on a Saturday. I think it's Monday morning now. And she was like, what are you doing? I was like, shut up. I'm in the middle of this game. And I, and I did really well. And the trouble with doing well at gambling is you convince yourself that you're good. You convince this, yourself that you're a professional, that actually I've got a secret here. I'm really good at gambling. Look at me. I've just won. And I think that that actually propelled my gambling a bit worse. So then it was uh, drinking and gambling. And those were the ways that I would soothe my feelings and soothe how I felt about daily life, you know, the struggles with work, the struggles with having young children, the struggles of paying a mortgage, and the struggles of being David, who didn't know who the hell he was. Mm. So what was your bottom? What happened okay. that you said, life is unmanageable, I can't, you know, the way I see step one is you can't handle your shit anymore, so you have to admit it. Okay. Um, so I'll, I'll walk you through that. That took 10 years. And um, we talk about getting a rock bottom. And every time I found a rock bottom, mine had a trap door in the bottom and I had further to fall. So um, when I was 42, um, I was quite successful in my career. I was now uh, a senior consultant, an independent consultant working in banks. Um, and I started my own company in 2007. Um, I started my own company. I'd had enough. I just got divorced. Um, I wasn't living with my my wife and sons, um, and I wagered everything. I mean, this was a gamble. I wagered everything that I had on starting a company. Uh, I put £100,000 on my credit cards, and boy, oh boy, it was a success. And uh, in the first year, we turned over £30 million. I began to earn wow. millions and millions of dollars. And over the next 10, 12 years, that company turned over £2 billion. I made tens of millions of pounds. And I tell you what, when you're an addict and when you're as ill as I was, don't give him lots and lots of money. So that began something different. At the age of 42, when I started to earn a lot of money, I then thought I was invincible. And I had Ferraris and McLarens and private jets and I would go on holidays. But the truth was that I was still the same guy that was desperate to be loved unliked, and needed. I didn't know how to make real friends. So I began to buy friends and I would befriend people and they would befriend me. And I was incredibly generous. I would take them on international trips. I gave a friend of mine a McLaren because I wanted him to like me and be my friend. Uh, and then I was introduced to cocaine and cocaine was the, the last added piece to the puzzle. If you're drinking a lot and you're gambling a lot, and then you add cocaine into the mix. And then over the next 10 years, um, things just got worse and worse and worse and all the consequences came. So um, I'd said 2007, I started the company. 2009, I remarried, uh, which was a disastrous marriage. Um, I went to rehab. That was when I, I told you earlier. I didn't admit that I was taking cocaine. I left rehab. Um, couldn't identify with the people in there. They're not like me. I'm extremely special. And, and all of that false ego was really to hide the emotional bankruptcy that I felt inside, the self-loathing, knowing that I was out of control, knowing that I was a loser. And people would say, gosh, look, look at you. Aren't you really successful? And I was thinking inside, I'm dead. Um, so I went um, on another five-year bender um, and then got divorced for a second time. Uh, in 2014, um, I was living on my own in a small apartment. I mean, I still had lots of money, but there I am living in a small apartment. And uh, the, the, 
the block of apartments uh, are in the town that I used to live in. And it was internationally known around the area to be known as Heartbreak Hotel. If you lived I'm, in, I'm a huge Elvis fan. No, that's there all. you go. If you lived in Heartbreak Hotel, it's because you're divorced or getting a divorce. There's lots of little apartments and all the men are there on their own. So I was living in Heartbreak Hotel. Uh, I was taking a lot of cocaine and gambling. And then one day I decided that um, I'd had enough, that I couldn't carry on. And I'd convinced myself, and this is the terrible thing about being so mentally ill, that you convince yourself that the world is better off without you. And of course, that's incredibly wrong. The world is not better off without you, the poor people that you leave behind. But I convinced myself that um, everyone would be better off without me. My children would be better off. Um, and I couldn't, I couldn't live. So um, I, I won't go into too much detail, but I took a huge overdose. I ended up in hospital. Um, and I was told I've got 12 hours to live. And um, I got a lawyer in. I made my will. I saw my first wife, who was the mother of my sons, and said, uh, I'm going to be dying. Um, I cr was crying and said, I can't believe what I've done. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. You know, when you say the addict's prayer, God, I want it to stop. God, please save me. Or God, I want to die. Or, you know, the addict's prayer. And, um, and I waited to die. And then a couple of days later, the doctor said, it's an absolute miracle. Your liver is healed um, because my, my liver had, had died. And he said, your liver is healed and you can go home. And I went home and thought, oh, my gosh, I can't believe I've dodged a bullet. And then what did I do? Two days later, I started drinking and taking drugs again and went on another five years, another five years. And then in 2019, so just over three years ago, 2019, I'll get to the point. The final rock bottom was... I've got a, a lovely wife. We, I'm married again. I've got lovely children. And, but my addiction had gripped me. And um, we were always arguing. And it was honestly, I, I would pick arguments with her so that I could run away. And then one day um, we were separated. Uh, and I, there was a tree in the back garden and I had a rope. And I thought, I'm going to do this. And I honestly stopped myself. And there was a voice that said, what the hell are you doing? You've been here before, David. You've traveled this road before. Um, you don't want to do that. And I called the rehab for the third time and said, will you let me in? And I said, absolutely. And I'm forever grateful to this rehab. They're called the Priory in Altrincham, the Priory Group. And they took me in. And um, Jill, who took me in, said, hello, David, you're, you're back here again. Can I ask you, what is it that you want? And I said, I want peace. And she said, okay, do the work. And that time... Then I was done, Jim. I, I, I'd proven to myself that there was no other way. I had proven to myself that I was an addict. And I was so broken, I said to, to God and anyone else that would listen, I will do anything and everything to get this. And that was what I proceeded to do. And I didn't work ever again. I, I volunteered. I didn't have a job. Volunteered. Uh, I ended up working there um, and went on the journey and, and recovery has given me everything. The fellowships have given me everything. Um, my wife is incredible. She supported me. And um, I now sort of know why I'm around. I now know why I'm on the planet. And I think it's to talk about addiction and recovery. It's to talk about people can prevail. And it doesn't matter how hard you think you've fallen and how far you can prevail. You can get up. And people help you, by the way. People support you for free and they put their arms around you and hold your hand and say come on i've been in the hole with i'll come in with you come on let's go i'll help you that's what i love that's the bit of humanity that i was always looking for i was always looking for the goodness in people yet i opened myself to to becoming hurt and betrayed because i allowed people to do that to me and I always imagined that there would be lovely people. And I found them in the rooms of AA, CA, NA, and all the other anonymous that I've, I've frequented. So now, um, from that rock bottom, I was very lucky to have the gift of desperation. Um, and um, I'm forever grateful to the people on the addiction treatment program, to my sponsor, to the people in every single meeting I've ever been to, um, and to my higher power and people like you, Jim, because you're carrying the message. It's really fundamental to me. It gets me emotional about how people can turn their lives around. doesn't matter where you think you are today. It, tomorrow's not going to be like that. And, and what we've got is today. And you can 
change, you can put the work in. And fundamentally, we all know we're good people. You know, we're just a bit poorly sometimes. Yeah, and it's amazing as addicts, you mentioned you were given the gift of desperation. Isn't it yes. amazing we consider that a gift? Yes. People yeah, think absolutely. that's a terrible state <laughs> to be in, but it's the terrible state that we need to be in. Uh, completely. And, and, and it's because nobody could tell me, you know, no one could tell me. My wife couldn't tell me that I was drinking too much or somebody else couldn't tell me that I, I was a drug addict. No one's going to tell me. Uh, I had to find out myself. And, and I had to find the place where I was so bloody desperate. I started listening. I started listening to the message, actually. And then I started getting hope from the people that had gone before me. And again, that's what I love about fellowships, which is that, that people give the time and, and talk about their own experience and journey so that we help the next person. You know, that concept, I love the concept of paying it forward. You know, and I, I, I imagine um, the journey of, a, of a, a dime or a quarter or a pound coin, you know, it comes out of my pocket, it goes in your pocket and it goes, and this, this coin is going on a journey around the planet. And that's what I like to think about kindness and doing a good deed and helping the next guy. That's what paying it forward is all about. You know, it's not about I'll do you a favor and you need to pay me back. No, I don't like that concept. I like the idea of paying it forward. That's the sort of place, that's the world that I want to live in. Yeah, I mean, when you can give away things and not ask for anything in return, that's a gift in itself. Yes. You're not doing it for that. Thank you. I mean, so I I say, okay, the Dalai Lama has a, a term. It's called wise selfish. It says if you're going to be selfish, do something that helps another person that also helps you. You know what I mean? So you can take your selfish activity and actually end up helping people. And don't get me wrong. I like when people say thank you to me and stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm truly doing this just to help people. That's kind of like yes. a byproduct of doing what I do. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but absolutely. Uh, do you know, um, I learned early on in, in recovery, uh, my sponsor used to talk to me a lot about motive. So I used to say, hey, listen, I'm a good guy. There was Simon uh, the Tramp that used to live in the town centre. And I used to see him when I had lots of money. I used to give him 50 pound notes. He used to love me. And I used to walk up and I would hand him 50 pound notes. And sometimes I would do that and look around to see if anyone was watching me. Because actually, I wanted a medal. You know, I wanted somebody mm -hmm. to say, look at that guy. Isn't he generous? What a great guy. Stinking motive. It, was, it wasn't about helping Simon. It was about me wanting to be a great guy and be recognized as Mr. Generous. Look at him. Yeah. So I, I learned a lot about motive to, to check my motive of why I'm doing something. You know, is it really pure? Um, and sometimes I find myself wanting. I still do. I still find myself wanting. You know, I'm a human being, but uh, I've got the capacity now to, to test myself a little bit. You know, why, why, why are you doing that? You're doing this for the right motive, actually, David. Yeah. So tell us about your sobriety. How are you staying sober nowadays? What kind of things do you do? How's life treating you? Okay. Bless you. Well, th thanks for asking that. And listen, I love sobriety. I, I love being clean and sober. You know, very early on in, in, in recovery, the idea of going to sleep at night, clean and sober, was just a miracle. It is a bloody miracle. It's a miracle that I'm alive and it's a miracle that I'm clean and sober. But um, so I have regular routines. Uh, so I still uh, volunteer at the Priory. Um, I go to regular meetings at the Priory, aftercare meetings where I support them. I go to um, uh, NA and CA meetings uh, online. And, and I go to some local AA meetings here in Dubai. So I do all of that. I, but, but the other things that for my recovery that keeps me, keeps me involved is being involved, doing service and being involved. So I've done service at the same Narcotics Anonymous meeting now for three years. And I love it. And I, I just don't want to give up because I, I, love seeing, I love seeing people get well. I love see, seeing people turn up at meetings. And over a long time, they, they turn around, they get well, and their lives turn around. I'll tell you some of the other things that, that I do, Jim, is I recognized very early on that I needed a routine. I really rely on routine. And my morning routine has become a ritual, 
not like an OCD thing, but I mean a ritual of, of waking up in the morning on the right side of the bed and doing my prayers and having a gratitude list and being grateful for so much. So lots and lots of the things that I've learned, I still do today, what I was told to do three and a bit years ago. Same, week in, week out. Um, and then you, you learn some other skills, don't you? Which you end up inventing and finding out yourself. So, you know, one of the things that I've, I've learned, which is really important for me, which is bad days are gonna happen. Sometimes I have a shit day. Sometimes it's my fault and sometimes it's not. But I do know one thing, which is that if the day is pants, I go to bed. I go to bed at six o'clock, seven o'clock and say, do you know what? Today's done. There's nothing that I can do in this day that is going to miraculously change it into the world's best day. Today just happened to be a day that didn't quite work out how maybe I wanted it to. So one of the greatest tools that I've got in my, in my box is to go to bed and wake up in the morning refreshed and sleep is great. So, you know, I, I'm, I love recovery. I love being around addicts. Um, uh, recovering alcoholics and addicts uh, and that's why I, I'm so so pleased to, to be with you today I love learning I love talking with people who've gone on a similar journey I want to be of some use to society I really do because if if my 40 odd years on the planet of drinking I'm 57 now um, and all the years of pain and chaos and hurt if I don't do something with that experience, it was all worthless, completely worthless. And I choose for it not to be worthless. I'd like to talk uh, about it. I don't do that because egotistically I think I'm right or I'm, I'm fantastic. I just know that sometimes some of the things that I say resonate with some people. And that will do me. That That's good enough for me to give me self-worth and some life purpose. So that's what recovery is for me. It's life purpose now. It's given me a reason to be proud sometimes. And also it gives me an understanding why sometimes I might feel sad. And that's okay to have these emotions. So it's taught me an awful lot. It's taught me everything. Everything that for a lifetime I didn't know and understand is taught me all of that. Sounds like an amazing journey you've been on. Yeah, so still going. Here. Let me ask you a question. Yes, sir. Do you have any advice for people watching and listening? Yeah, okay. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. If if you're watching and listening and you're not an addict, um, but you want to help people, go and help people. Go and be kind and nice and see how you can volunteer. Some of the best days of my life have been in volunteering and helping people, giving my time for free. Uh, I'm not trying to preach to anyone. I'm just saying that if you do do that already, hats off to you because you'll know the benefit. If you've never done that, do that. If, you, if you're somebody who's struggling with addiction or you're somebody who's who's concerned about what's going on in their life, I can never say anything more than talk to somebody. Talking is the solution to everything. You know, I don't think I know anyone who got sober on their own in their own bedroom, on their own. You know, it just doesn't happen like that. If people want to change their life, they need to speak to somebody. And that means you're going to have to find some courage. I'm sorry, but you might have to find some courage and actually speak and reach out to somebody. So whatever whatever um, you might be suffering with, find the right person to speak to. And, and that can come from the Samaritans or it can come from an, an anonymous group. Or if you're really unable to speak to somebody that you know, who might be friendly, you know, speak to a doctor or a healthcare professional. But honestly, living in silence and worrying about things, um, the best thing to do is to talk to somebody. That That's my number one thing. We, we, we sometimes have to find the courage to, to talk and seek advice. Um, you know, the only other thing that I learned uh, at the very beginning rehab is, you know, how do we change ourselves? How do we get clean and sober? Well, the H-O-W is honesty, open-mindedness and willingness. So it begins with getting honest. So, you know, let, let's be honest. Um, and maybe I can leave everyone with one question, you know, if, if alcohol is your, your, your issue, you know, come and ask yourself the question, is alcohol my friend? Are drugs my friend? You know, is gambling my friend? Because um, I suspect they're not. And if you're in a position where you're beginning to doubt it, go and do a little bit more investigation. 
because maybe you're at the turning point in your life where you don't have to take drink and drugs and gamble or any other addictive behavior or substance. You don't have to do that. You don't. That's great advice. I really appreciate that. Bless you. So did you have anything else that you want to add before we get going? No, I, I, I gosh, you, you, I think I've ended up saying an awful lot more than I thought thought I was going to. Yeah, no, this was a great been, interview. Uh, bless you, I've 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 loved it. Thank you again for allowing me a platform to talk about what I believe is really fundamental. Because I, th I think I'll try and end it with this, which is the thing that's really important to me is about is about happiness and contentment and serenity and peace. So, how do you value happiness? How do you value any of these things well look, they, they all come from within and I think if anyone who has battled anything in their life um you know the way to to turn life around is is to battle that tackle it just get on with it you know if, if you've been worried about something if, if there's something that's been troubling you if there's something that you know that's disturbing you um it's so easy isn't it for us all to deny the truth and push push it to one side and bury it inside ourselves. But unfortunately, they don't tend to go away and they need to, you know, they need to find the light. Um, one of my favorite sayings is, we can only heal what we reveal. And that's so important. That is an amazing tip. That really is. I like little things like that. Me too. All right. So uh, sit tight for me. Let me do my little sales pitch here. For everybody watching and listening, if you like what you saw and heard, go below and give us a like. Also, subscribe to see when we upload new videos. You can check Addicts Anonymous out on Twitter, Reddit, Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also check out our website, which is www.addicts-anonymous.com. There you will find plenty of free literature as well as resources. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and saw today. And until next time.